Hello and welcome to Believe in Me with Rona Barton. This week I'm going to be sharing an episode of the Action for ME podcast entitled Learn About ME that I was invited to be part of in March this year. Don't forget you can review, share and subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also sign up for my mailing list by visiting ronabarton.co.uk or join my Facebook group Believe in Me Community by heading over to my Facebook page at Rona Barton Coaching. I hope you enjoy this episode as it's about exploring the understanding and adjustments needed in social care and social work services to enable people with ME to access and benefit from these. I had the pleasure of joining Claire Ogden, Services Manager at Action for ME, and Zoe McIntyre, who has fibromyalgia and is a professional in social care. This podcast illustrates some of the barriers and challenges that are useful to keep in mind while working to support someone with ME. This episode also highlights the adjustments that are useful to enable someone with ME to engage with services and create appropriate care plans. Zoe also raises important considerations around safety and how the unique nature of ME requires a different, more flexible approach to avoid harm. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Learn About ME podcast series. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Ruth Richardson, and I work for Action for ME, a national charity supporting people of all ages with ME. Today's episode topic is Learn About ME and Social Care, the fifth in our series of podcasts. All of our podcasts are available on Buzzsprout and Spotify, and we are funded by the Scottish Government to deliver a medical education project. This project aims to increase the confidence of health and social care professionals in diagnosing and supporting patients with the health condition myalgic encephalomyelitis, known as ME or ME-CFS. Alongside developing a series of podcasts, we are encouraging medical and social care professionals to complete an online module worth one CPD point to enhance their knowledge of ME. ME is a long-term fluctuating neurological condition affecting an estimated 21,000 adults and children in Scotland. Our previous podcasts have focused on stories about and interviews with the medical professionals who work with ME, but this time we will be hearing from people working in or who have experience of social care. Not all people with ME require social care support, However, those that do often experience barriers when trying to access appropriate care. The Close to Collapse report, published by the UK charity Action for ME, found that a staggering 97% of people with ME have a level of need that may entitle them to statutory care and support, yet only 16% had received social care assessments, and of these, only 6% had been awarded a care package from their local authority. To explore these issues further, I'm joined today by three great guests, Claire Ogden, Services Manager at Action for ME, Zoe McIntyre, Employability Project Worker at Link Living Limited in Edinburgh, who also has the long-term health condition fibromyalgia, and Rona Barton, who recovered from severe ME and has also volunteered as a peer mentor for Action for ME's Scotland Mentoring Programme. And last month, we also delivered a webinar to social care professionals on ME, 
which is now freely available to all on the Action for Emmy YouTube channel. Claire, moving to you first, and thanks very much for joining today. What would you say is the main barrier for people with ME when they need to access social care or social work services? Being aware of your rights and how to advocate for them can be really challenging, particularly when you've got a long-term condition. People we support here at Action for ME often don't know what they're entitled to or how to ask for an assessment, and many don't feel confident about discussing their needs with some professional because of historical stigma and disbelief about ME and a lack of understanding about its impact. Often children and young people with ME and their families come into contact with social services because of inappropriate referrals that have raised concerns in a child protection context, rather than recognising that young people with ME are children in need. Similar barriers can occur when adults with ME might be labelled with self-neglect, when in fact their symptoms are preventing them from getting shopping or preparing a meal, leading to severe weight loss. Thank you, Claire. And I know your charity supports thousands of people a year with ME. What would be the most important thing you want to tell anyone working in social care or social work about ME to help them better understand the condition? I know that people working in social care already take a person-centred approach. So I think the most important thing to know is that there's some very specific challenges facing people living with ME. Simple physical or mental activities or a combination leave people feeling utterly debilitated and can increase pain in other symptoms. The impact of this typically takes a day or even longer, and this is a key feature of ME called post-exertional malaise. Crucially, it's not significantly improved by rest, and it can obviously make it incredibly difficult for people to participate in day-to-day activities. And it might take a significant amount of planning to um, be able to do even the smallest task. Another key symptom is brain fog, um, which is problems with memory, thinking and speaking. This can have a significant impact when it comes to completing forms and participating in assessments or interviews. So if possible, it would be a huge help to provide questions in advance and allow time for people to prepare their responses. It's also important to remember that people with ME might only be able to manage a really short conversation, perhaps 10 minutes at a time. So more than one appointment might be needed to complete an assessment. Again, people need time to respond to phone calls and letters. And if you don't hear back within what you regard to be a usual time frame, it's because they might be too ill to do this. Some people with ME have very low tolerance for light, sound or smells, so bear this in mind if you do a home visit. It's worth referring to the 2021 NICE guideline here, which has got detailed guidance for professionals working with adults and children living with ME, including those most severely affected. Thank you for those really useful tips on how services can better support people. I know that Action for ME also has an advocacy service. How do you think services can enable people to advocate on their own behalf? Services can allow people time to prepare, offer flexible appointments and uh, provide them with assessment questions ahead of time. They should also bear in mind that only offering forms online is a real barrier to someone who might not always be able to get online because their symptoms. Services can also signpost to Action for ME if people want additional support to prepare for an assessment or prepare an impact statement about how ME affects them. We also run self-advocacy workshops and can send out free self-advocacy resources. The idea of promoting independence and not dependence isn't appropriate for someone living with a condition like ME who can't predict how and when their symptoms will affect them. 
offering as much flexibility and understanding as possible means people with ME are better supported to advocate strongly for themselves, especially if they feel they've been heard and that their expert knowledge of their own symptoms is being taken on board. Thank you. And can you give us further details of where people with ME and their carers can go if they need help and support with accessing social care? People with ME of any age and professionals can come to Action for ME for information, support and resources. And we offer one-to-one advocacy support for adults and children to help them access services that meet their needs. One of the most frequent requests we receive for advocacy support is help with getting health and social care professionals to understand ME and how it impacts their life. So we often support people to prepare an impact statement that explains how ME affects them because it's different for every person. Some symptoms are not obvious and many people have told us that for years they felt like no one's listening to them or believes them. This obviously takes its toll and impacts heavily on a person's mental well-being. The difference that being heard and understood makes is absolutely huge. My next guest is Zoe McIntyre, who is a project worker at Link Living Limited. Zoe, in your experience, what does a good care plan for someone with ME look like? So from my experience um, in social care, I would say that one thing that really makes a care plan stand out compared to one that's hastily put together is one that has very much had the person who is receiving care, being the one to develop it, and or is co-produced by people that know them best. Where it's written from some practitioner's perspective, that's where there's going to be um, a contrast in different sort of views on how care should be delivered. Um, I would also say as well that anyone, whether it be your regular member of staff that you might have, if it's an agency member of staff, I would say that they should be able to pick it up as if they've never met you before, don't know you, read through it once and pretty much get the gist of how to support you and be able to refer back to it if they have any questions. Because obviously, understandably, on a day where particularly communication might be limited, you know, asking somebody loads and loads of questions about how should I do this, how should I do that, that's not going to make them feel any better, it's going to make them feel worse. So that's really important. I would also say as well, from my experience, in terms of safeguarding and things like that, from my experience of being involved in investigations, but not being investigated personally, the first thing that um, anyone investigating whatever incident asks is, was it in the care plan to do that? And if it is in the care plan, blatantly saying, one thing and your member of staff does the other a complete opposite thing then it makes the investigation process much more cut and dry whereas if it's not in the care plan then there's much more of a debate around oh but was that good for somebody with ME was it not and obviously it's very likely during investigations um of like mispractice and things like that it's not going to be somebody that knows a lot about ME that is doing it so I think you know the more information the better and all, the final thing I'll say is that um, it should also contain, uh, which I know Actions for ME provides, is like a one or two page quick guide to quick summary of what uh, ME is, what it looks like. Because quite often care plans, from my experience, don't contain information about what somebody's disability actually is, what it might involve in a generic sense. So I think that's also really important. And how do you think services can ensure that they provide a safe service for someone living with ME? So I think one thing that's really important, and I think this is something on an individual level that's important to do, but also 
in terms of like the caring spectrum and all the wider structures around social care need to sort of move away from is the need to sort of demonstrate that you're engaging with somebody. So quite often, uh, from my experience, what it would mean is if somebody was, you know, in their bed and not wanting to get out of bed, as social care staff, we'd be encouraged to keep going in, keep trying to get them out of bed, keep talking to them, sit with them in their room, and just generally... Basically, the end goal was not to allow them to be in bed. That was kind of the unspoken thing. But sometimes that's what people are choosing to do. That's what people are wanting to do. And I think especially with ME, that's obviously a big part of ME. Sometimes they're doing three, you're not going to be able to leave your bed. And that's fine. But I think that sort of, I say understanding, but that understanding of ME, even if you did understand ME, is doesn't translate into how you'd expect it to practice as a social care member of staff. So I think that's something that systematically more so we need to like move away from. I would also say as well, and I think especially we've seen this um, sort of discussion happen more so in the COVID pandemic, is we really need to be treating our social care staff better. And when I say that, what I particularly mean is paying them a much higher wage. I think at the moment, even uh, a lot of organisations in Scotland certainly are paying, you know, living wage or above, but I still think given the amount of physical, mental toll that staff go through, the wage that you get is not enough to really take care of yourself as a social care member of staff. So I do think that certainly um, paying higher wages, including paid sick leave and things like that, I think that's really super duper important in providing a safe service for any. And then also as well, the one thing that has been a bugbear of mine in social care is we'll receive training for pretty much everything under the sun to do with you know organizational policies procedures first aid moving and assisting but the majority of the time I wouldn't actually receive any specialist training about somebody's particular disability whether it be ME or whether it be autism or whether it be learning disabilities and I just think that to be quite blunt about it that's it's like structural ableism. It's ableism, like right at its fore, that organisations are more concerned with. Right, we'll give the training that we need to give to cover our backs in case, like, there's an accident or an incident, and we need to make sure that somebody has this training. But that that's where it stops. It doesn't continue with. Oh well, actually, I think it's really important that our staff know in depth about this person's disability, um, and certainly. Um, you know, for one example, in my practice, there was one person that we supported who had in the past had been taught how to use a type of sign language to communicate. But as the years went on, um, you know, the staff left that knew the sign language and all that kind of stuff. And this, so basically this person lost their ability to communicate um, using the sign language that they used because we, we weren't given the training to communicate in their language. So that's how... That's how blatant these sort of examples can be. So I really do think that um, training, as it stands right now, really needs to be improved to ensure not only the safety, but well-being of the people that um, we're supporting. 
Thanks, Zoe. And I think you make a really valid point about the value or lack thereof placed on social care staff. We often find through our services with Action for Emmy that you may get to the point of having a really excellent care plan that's been co-produced and worked with the person. But then we'll bring in a team to deliver that plan and there'll be such rapid turnover that the person with ME ends up having to train these people themselves, which of course is incredibly challenging with with limited energy. Yeah, I'll elaborate a bit on like the first point I was making about having to prove that you're engaging with somebody as a member of staff. And I think part of um, the issue with that as well is also having to evidence that you tried taking somebody out for a walk. You tried going to the cafe with them you offered them activities um because doctors will constantly tell people to exercise and all that sort of thing not only for their physical health but also for their well-being but given that especially recently the nice guidelines have changed to say that um graded exercise therapy for any is actually not recommended as a form of treatment anymore uh, certainly in social care there needs to be a sort of but like acceptance of what your limitations are and boundaries are and work within that rather than, you know, in a way magically trying to, um, you know, cure or work towards having less ME than you did before because that's not how, especially neurological conditions work. Um, so I think certainly um, the pressure being put on staff to prove that you are working with somebody, you're doing something like, you know, your wages, et cetera, are justified. I think that's a really harmful thing in social care, especially for people with ME, but I would say that's also across the board as well. And Zoe, what learning would you like to share with fellow practitioners on the key adjustments for working with someone with ME? In terms of re-enablement, I think that tends to be the goal in relation to working towards promoting that person's independence. When really re-enablement, it's sort of that is like working towards more able version of that person's previous self or whatever way you want to phrase it. Re-enablement is more so about trying to promote somebody's independence, i.e. be without care, uh, do things for themselves when really, as is the case with a lot of disabilities, but particularly with ME, it's more about interdependence. And I think that's often seen as like a dirty concept or it's wrong to rely on other people to do things for you or you know the end goal should be to not need care in some capacity or less care as little as possible so in that sense I think it's really important for practitioners to sort of be aware that they're there for a reason they're not there just for a season it's really crucial that they're there and the way that I talk about social care to other people sometimes is I see it like insurance like on a good day you might not be needed to do very much at all as a member of staff but if something goes wrong that is where you need to pick it up and pick into action so I think just because your day-to-day doesn't look the same two days in a row as a member of staff but also for somebody with ME I think that you know coming away from that re-enablement long-term goal and just having long-term goals that work for the person you're supporting so whether that be just like improved quality of life even if as as the um you know, that person's going through a flare-up for six months where they've not really been able to leave their bed. That can be the long-term goal instead of promotion of independence, re-enablement and all that kind of thing. 
And Zoe, what part of the process of accessing social care do you find ME patients often need the most support with? And why do you think that is? So certainly from my experience supporting people, I think navigating social work is a huge part of it. Because I remember like at university a few years ago, I learned about self-directed support and what that should look like, what that involves, and sitting at uni thinking, oh yeah, that sounds great. Like, you know, that this is the business. But when I've been working with people who have required social work input of whatever kind, whether it be working towards getting a self-directed support package or some other alternative, I only very recently learned how to navigate that. And that's my job. So if that's something that I've only really just clicked and figured out how to navigate, then how do we expect people with ME, who have limited energy, concentration, all that to get a hang of it. And then as well, I know certainly at the moment for a few of the clients that I'm supporting, the wait list for social work is extremely long. I know at the very least, even just for a screen and phone call, it's taken about four weeks for some of my clients at the moment who could really use a support worker. So there is this huge gap and huge burden uh, on waiting lists and things like that on social work and they are really short-staffed and it is it's a problem it is a problem um for people with ME in particular and I, I say it's a relatively easy fix but I think even if social work aren't able to provide care in the meantime there needs to be some sort of like stopgap measure because that just doesn't really exist right now and it's leaving people behind to be honest. And my final guest today is Rona. Rona what difference would it have made to your life if you'd been able to access care and support when you were most unwell? Well for me when I was most unwell it was probably more important that my family could access things because for me it was really just about surviving minute to minute you know I mean I, I was bed bound wheelchair bound taking the next breath was often um, difficult so I wouldn't have actually been able to cope personally with much more involvement from from other people just having one other person in the room with me could exhaust me so I guess having the additional support the respite for my mum she was the one that that ended up looking after me if I'd been able to identify that at the time myself I would have highlighted that as a priority because me being unwell had quite a massive impact on the wider family anyway, and more specifically on my mum. So if I'd had the self-awareness at the time, then I would have basically been asking for help for her. Um, having a point of contact or almost like a one-stop shop for where she could go for the information, where she could go for advice, or even just, just to vent over, you know, whatever frustrations were sitting on her plate with the fact that her recently diagnosed and 21-year-old daughter was back to needing to be fed and bathed and, you know, and couldn't get out of bed for, for days on time, couldn't walk, you know, somewhere for her to, to be able to go that wasn't the rest of the immediate family um, would have been useful because hopefully she could have picked up at the time some hints, some tips, some extra support um, for herself, which would have helped her then support me and more, um, I can't really say in more detail because she, she did everything she could. I don't know what else she could have done, but it would have, I suppose in hindsight, it would have given me a bit of reassurance that she wasn't putting herself at risk because she didn't know how to um, 
move me, handle me, you know, get me from being flat in my bed to the bathroom. Um, and she lost a lot of weight through worry and stress with it to the point that she was lighter than me and she was trying to lift me and manoeuvre me from bed to a wheelchair or a commode or in and out of a bath or a shower in some way. So I think it would have saved a lot of frustrations if she'd managed to get more support earlier on um, in my condition. But how how we did that, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if it's something that it's almost like a, a tick box. You turn up at the GP because your child, your partner, whomever it is, isn't well, and that automatically triggers uh, getting put onto the wait list. Um, so certainly... I think it would have made initially a difference just having that one-stop shop for the rest of the family to be able to reach out to when they needed it. And then as my condition improved over the years, I could have potentially used that myself as well. Thank you so much for sharing, Rona. I think you've really shone a light on how ME can have massive impact on not just the individual themselves, but the network around them and how support's needed there. And what would you like social care or social work practitioners to know about ME when they work with people, particularly those who are severely affected as you were? Well, I mean, both Claire and Zoe have touched on different aspects already. So um, I guess from my point of view, one of the things to remember is that People with chronic conditions, be it ME or, or anything else, um, they don't they don't want them. They don't want to live with them. You know, they would much prefer having a quote unquote normal life and um, being able to do everything that their peers are doing. And I guess specifically with MEers, the thing to remember is if you ask them to do more, they will do it because we are a stubborn bunch, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, and even if that is to our own detriment, we will do our best because we are, quite frankly, desperate to do anything we can to get well. Um, so I guess the the main parts that I would like social care or social work practitioners to know about is um, please just be aware of the individual's limitations. You know, be aware that there are good days and there are bad days and it's not as simple as um, working step by step, you know, you do A, then you move to B, then you hit C, eventually you get to D. And before you know it, you're all the way through the alphabet and well again. That's not how it happens. There's so much trial and error and, and setbacks and then achievements and then a smaller setback till eventually you move forward again. So it's knowing and understanding the restrictions that those individuals have because we are all different. That's what makes life interesting. Um, but they could be experiencing a good day when they make an appointment to see the social work practitioners or to, to be part of any social care visit. But on the day, even up to the minute you arrive, it might end up being a bad day and they just have to cancel. And it's having that flexibility and that, um, if you like, the need not to kind of pester somebody to, as Zoe said, you know, to prove that they've done their job. They've ticked the boxes. They've encouraged them to go out for a coffee. They've encouraged them to get up and get dressed and have a shower. You just need to, quite frankly, let people be. They are the expert in their own condition. They know what they can manage at that point in time, on that day, within that week. 
And yes, sometimes we are over enthusiastic about what we can achieve in a day or a week. Um, but we are the ones that, that then pay the price for that. Not necessarily that day or the day after. It could be two or three days later. And it has a knock-on effect to everything else. So I guess it's just that bear in mind you're dealing with an individual. So listen to them as the expert. Rona, you've given some excellent insight into how people in social care can better support people with ME. I wonder if you've got anything to add to my last question, which is what would good social care, in fact, what would excellent social care look like? So you're inviting me onto my soapbox here, Ruth. <laughs> so, um, oh, goodness, excellent. Or, or Good, or for me, just even acceptable social care would be to have an individual, almost like a named individual, rather than being passed from pillar to post to, to a number of people. And having that individual who completely understands that the ME is their own expert, having somebody who will listen, having somebody who's empathetic, who's flexible in their approach, who's willing to learn from the individual ME person who's willing to change the way they work and work within the individual's limitations or restrictions from day to day. Somebody who actually will also engage the family or, or the carer, you know, whoever it is um, that individual's support system, if you like. And somebody who really and, and really genuinely understands the fluctuating nature of the condition, that just because they were able to sit up and have a 10-minute conversation with you last time you visited does not mean you're getting the same reception this time. This time they might be lying in a darkened room with headphones on and, you know, the likes of a sleep mask because they can't tolerate the sound, the light. There might be um, windows open to allow fresh air in because they, they, they're sensitive to so many other aspects. And I guess... That means we're really looking for people who are adaptable. Well, sadly, we're about out of time, but I would really like to thank all of my guests. And a reminder that there are specific guidelines within the new NICE 2021 guidelines for ME around social care, and particularly social care for those who are severely affected. Since our last podcast was released, the Scottish Government have committed to updating their own guidance around ME based on the new NICE guidelines. Well, a final thank you to my guests, Claire, Rona and Zoe. It was great to have you all on here today. I'm Ruth Richardson, and this has been the Learn About ME and Social Care podcast. I'd like to thank our project partners, ME Action Scotland, the ME Association and the 25% ME Group, and also Charitable PR for their support in creating the podcast for this project and of course, all of our listeners for taking the time to listen today. If you want to find out more about the work of any of our partners, you can find ME Action Scotland on Twitter or visit meaction.net. The ME Association website is meassociation.org.uk. And for the 25% ME group who support the severely affected, it's 25megroup.org. And of course, all of these podcasts and the module for professionals to complete is available at actionforme.org.uk. We are called the Learn About ME Project. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Action for ME. So that's it for today, folks. I realise this is quite a long episode for you to listen to, so thank you for persevering with it. I hope you found it 
useful and that you can see that Action for ME is reaching out to wider groups to help spread the message of the assistance and consideration required for people with ME. Thank you for listening. As ever, please review, share and follow Believe in Me with Rona Barton via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Remember, you can sign up to my mailing list by visiting my website at ronabarton.co.uk or hop on over to Facebook to find my Believe in Me community at Rona Barton Coaching and join in some conversation there. I hope today's a really good day for you. I'll be back next week with another bonus episode. Bye for now.